Welcome to TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for tuning in and spending some time with us. On today's episode, we're chatting with Nick Downer of Loveland Technologies, a maps and data company based in Detroit, Michigan, that played a significant role in developing a property mapping database for Trek Community Fund's community-driven growth project which created an equitable development plan for three Dallas neighborhoods, the bottom West Dallas Census Tract 205 and the Forest District in South Dallas that have been deemed most vulnerable to rapid economic transition. The research was conducted last year and compiled into a report that was published in December and is available on our website. We'll link to that in the show notes and on the Trekwire blog over at recouncil.com. Before we get to our talk with Nick, I'd like to once again remind you to subscribe to TrekCast on your preferred podcasting platform and follow the Real Estate Council on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn so you can stay up to date with everything we've got going on. If you like what you hear on today's show and you've got an idea for an episode or guest, please email me at bsanantonio at recouncil.com. And now, here's Nick Downer of Loveland Technologies right here on TrackCast. Loveland played a sizable role in helping us organize the data that Trek Community Fund and its partners gathered during the community-driven growth surveys. But what is Loveland Technologies and what kind of services do you guys provide? Yeah, so uh, the shortest answer is we're a, a maps and data company. Um, so we work with property data nationwide. Uh, at this point, we have, uh, I want to say, 143 million parcels with property information that we've collected from uh, publicly available sources. Um, and we, the genesis of the company was around 2014 with uh, the housing crisis in Detroit. There was a real need to know how many properties exactly were vacant to go um, to the federal government and get funding. Um, and so out of that was born this sort of property platform where you could use uh, an app to survey properties uh, as well as to sort of look at property ownership and, and information of that sort. So uh, that is the general services with um, with Trek Community Fund. We've been uh, really trying to help play sort of uh, a role of a tool in the toolbox of um, providing those survey uh, options as well as property data um, in these three neighborhoods that have been selected. How did your relationship with Trek Community Fund begin? Because I know you said um, that Loveland is based in Detroit. We're, of course, based in Dallas. How did you guys find, find out about each other? What what made um, you know that working relationship worth having? Sure. So, uh, I mean, the shortest answer is we're always on the lookout for interesting projects. Uh, the slightly longer backstory is that we have a good relationship with a variety of people at J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, and we had done um, a variety of things sort of in the Rust Belt area with J.P. Morgan Chase, um, and that was the connection ultimately since J.P. Morgan Chase was a funder of the Pro Neighborhoods Grant. Um, they said, go check these Loveland guys out, um, and so that's sort of how we came into the loop. Um, we, in the, the first year, our role was fairly uh, well-defined, so we were really just there to do a resident door-knocking survey um, and to meet people where they're at, to go actually visit uh, residents and get feedback on a variety of questions. Um, moving forward, we're excited that our scope is a little bit broader. So in addition to offering those survey um, tools and techniques, we're also going to do a much deeper dive into generally sort of like what can we do with property data uh, in this mapping tool? How can we use that to sort of inform the work going forward? And that's what you guys did for the community fund, uh, the the parcel mapping. Can you tell us a bit more about you know what goes into 
conducting that work and then putting it all together? Yeah, so um, there are a couple steps to any surveying um, process. The first one is the design component. So you have to design the survey and you need to identify people to go out and conduct the survey. As a company, we're really interested in hiring locally. Um, and so we leverage the community partners that are a part of the Pro Neighborhoods grant um, and ask them to sort of select people who might want to work on this project. So that's how we got surveyors. Um, in terms of question design, we worked with the neighborhood partners as well as um, the, the university partner we had on the project um, and Trek members as well to sort of generate a list of questions. Uh, and those ranged from demographic information to questions about specific need. Uh, as well as questions concerning um, property ownership, because we know that one of the things that really helps to inoculate against gentrification is um, being able to have a, a concrete understanding from residents about what their actual ownership status is, being able to get their hands on deeds and those types of things. So we asked questions that we hoped would be useful um, as a static data set, and that also we could go back in future years and ask those same questions again uh, and use the first year as a baseline. You mentioned the work that you guys did in Detroit. Um, I guess that was the Motor City Mapping Project. That was the the detail that I had been given on it. How close, how closely did the community driven growth project resemble what you guys did in Detroit? And what more can you tell us about, you know, what what happened with with that project? And um, I guess what what kind of measure of success you guys had in putting that together? Yeah. So I would say that. Um, the community-driven growth project and motor city mapping, the two ways that they vary the most are in scale because motor city mapping was every property, which is about 900,000 in the city of Detroit for reference. So that involved visiting every single property. The other way that it's different is because what we were doing here, we were really much more interested in the resident and the door knocking side, whereas the motor city mapping project was built environment structures uh, entirely. Um, so the Motor City Mapping Project was, I think, stands out as a real success. Um, it married a, a variety of things, and I sort of touched on these before, but it really married the technology and the need to sort of come to an understanding of, like, what is the situation on the ground data-wise that could then be used. Uh, I think some signs of success that I would point to is, one, people continue to use it to this day. Two, property surveys are increasingly understood to be a useful tool in the arsenal for cities to have in terms of planning and data-driven decision-making. And three, millions of dollars um, in what ended up being known as hardest hit funds uh, ended up being allocated by the federal government to Detroit and other Rust Belt cities. Um, and the case for the hardest hit funds was made largely on the back of surveys like Motor City Mapping. Why? So I'm curious about the, the innovative potential for this kind of property mapping. If I'm an organization... Um, why would I come to Loveland for this kind of data mapping as opposed to any of the other, um, you know, potential resources that there that are out there for for this kind of job? Yeah, I think the um, there's a couple primary reasons. The first one I would cite is that I would say that our app is the most user friendly, if not one of the most user friendly apps out there, um, and that's important because it provides a low barrier to entry. And a lot of what we try to do as a company is take the stand of understanding property data and knowing who owns property shouldn't be the province of just a few people in a city or of the city manager. Uh, it should be something that all residents understand and know about. So a big part of what we do is try to democratize that stuff. And so we've made the tool as easy as possible. It's really a case of 
um, you set up the surveys so someone can do that for you. You have a mobile app, you load it up, you tap on the given parcel that you're standing in front of, um, and then you just get asked the questions. And so it's very straightforward. So that's that's one way I think it stands out. Um, the other things I think that are really interesting with the tool generally is there are a variety of applications and we are, uh, we're really exploring all of our options. And I think there's, once you have these kinds of tools, you start to think about all the variety of ways that you can use them. So uh, other ways in the past that we've used them beyond just sort of the bread and butter property surveys, um, obviously the resident surveys. And in addition to that, mapping uh, lead levels and soil to be able to get a good understanding of that, as well as doing canvassing and voter registration stuff. Um, so it's a very versatile medium. And being able to collect data from a survey as well as adding photos and then overlaying that on top of property information really helps you drill down. It's not just a case of here's a survey and here's what 100 people said, um, but you can also look at that in the context of uh, what are the property valuations? What's the vacancy rate in the place where these people live? And you can start to get a much uh, more sophisticated understanding of the place. What kinds of things are you guys looking for when you go out to do a project like this? I think there are, first and foremost, I think it's important to have partners who um, who jive with us in terms of mission and vision. So the first thing that we really look for is people who uh, have a strong use case for what we're doing and people who often are interested in sort of pushing the envelope and trying new things. I think it's also important to consider sort of like what the what the value to the community of the project that's being proposed is. So if that checks the boxes for us, then we we love to to work with people and we do it nationwide. Um, and it leads to some really interesting partnerships. And a, a lot of what um, I do, I think of as sort of like the Johnny Appleseed approach of going city to city and sort of sharing the knowledge that we've accumulated as a company and being able to distribute these tools and say, you know, you don't have to spend hours and hours looking through a county website to get ownership information. You know, it's right here or saying, did you know, you know, in Buffalo, they have a certain approach to tax foreclosure. It's pretty innovative. Check that out because I see there's a problem in, you know, this community. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's the larger uh, context in which we work. Was there anything that surprised you about the community-driven growth data? Anything that you saw that you weren't necessarily expecting to see? One of the things I thought was most interesting was in all three neighborhoods, uh, we one of the questions that was asked was a, a Likert scale one to seven, how do you feel about your neighborhood question? Um, and there were some other questions about safety and, and education quality. Um, but what we found is, although these neighborhoods are um, objectively have historically been disadvantaged, uh, we found that people really care about where they live and they really like it there. Um, and I've spent a fair amount of time working in similar neighborhoods across the country, and so it wasn't a mind-blowing revelation to me, but to be able to quantify that rather than anecdotally just sort of hearsay uh, be exposed to that, but to actually have the data to show that most people who live in these neighborhoods really like their neighborhood, uh, I think that's transformational because that's the kind of data that you need to understand how you would approach development. Because if people like where they live, right, you need to do more of what's already happening. You don't want to you don't need to redevelop. You don't need to reimagine a neighborhood or rebrand or anything, right? You need to build on existing strengths. So that was that was one of the most interesting things was to be able to quantify that type of data. And I know you've kind of touched on this throughout our interview, but just to sort of wrap up, what kind of impact can this kind of data make or what kind of impact can this have in, in implementing an equitable development plan uh, for our city? So I think the... 
most straightforward is what I what I was just mentioning, where you know if you if you understand what residents think and how they feel about their neighborhood, that needs to be foundational in sort of how it informs a development plan. More broadly, I think there is a a definite use case for making data more easily accessible, and I think that's the real transformation that can happen, uh, and it's something that really excites me day to day. Is if you have easily accessible property information, not just for you know the five percent of realtors in an area, but for everyone, really democratizing that information. And if you can use it, it means that everyone's on a level playing field, and you can start to uh, really have grassroots conversations that have substantive data behind them. And that's really powerful because for a long time, the dynamic has been you know you bring in an outside consultant or you have. Uh, you know, a, a certain group or type of people who come in and they have all of, you know, they've got a PowerPoint slide and they've got the numbers and they've got the statistics. And meanwhile, on the other side, you have residents um, who have maybe feelings and they know their neighborhood very well, but they have very little in the way of data to back it up. Um, so I think the long-term hope that I have with this work in Dallas generally is that we can push the ball forward on that and really make this more available so that data is a much more commonly used thing for the average person. The community fund received a $6 million pro-neighborhoods grant from J.P. Morgan. Um, we're now at the phase of starting to implement or figure out the ways of implementing the equitable development plan. How will Loveland uh, factor into that going forward? So not only are we going to do uh, more surveys so that, we can, the, uh, so that we can track the data that we've started with um, in the first year, we are also going to be doing a lot of uh, sort of assembling the metrics that are needed and then a lot of uh, sort of evaluation over time. So we're not going to be the chief evaluators, but having the property data available and the survey data will help provide information that goes to the the chief evaluator of this whole project. Um, so what does that look like? Um, examples would be, you know, if we're picking metrics around the workforce or getting people into well-paying jobs or whether it's uh, reducing vacancy in a neighborhood, those are all things that we are able to track. So we'll be asking those questions and we'll be providing that data to people to do the statistical work to evaluate. Nick, it's all very exciting. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. I'd like to thank Nick Downer of Loveland Technologies for talking to us about the company's role in bringing community-driven growth to life. Go check out the report in the show notes and on recouncil.com. Don't forget to subscribe to TrackCast, follow us on social media, and send us your ideas for future topics and guests. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.